guys can go ahead and have a seat. I love when the lights are on so I can actually see all your faces. Um, all right, welcome to Awaken, guys. Uh, my name is Malia, and I'm the college director here. Um, some frequently asked questions that I get are, um, what does the college director mean? Um, that's a great question. There's not really a clear answer. Um, I work full time here. I hang out with college students, and I get paid for it, and it's amazing. Um, so it is an honor to be here. Um, the other question I get most often is, are you in college? And no, I am not. Um, I know I look young. Uh, I promise I'm a few years graduated. Um, I went to GCU. Lopes up. Um, also love all my Sun Devils and community college friends. Love you too, Izzy. Um, and before we jump into tonight, just have a couple of announcements for you. Um, how many of you have ever heard of this little thing we like to call fall retreat? Solid answer. Thank you very much. Um, so if you're, if this is your first time and you're like, what the heck is fall retreat? Or you've just been ignoring us talking about it for the last couple weeks, I'm here to remind you once again what it is um, and why you should come. So every year as a college ministry, we get uh, just a weekend away. We go up to Prescott um, to a camp and conference center and we just say, God, we want to see you show up. And so we spend some time together as a college ministry and Everyone is invited. We want to see you all there. Um, but basically, we go, we worship God. We kind of do this on a little bit of a larger and longer scale. So we do it Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night. In between, we have a lot of fun. We play games. We make friends that we probably wouldn't have made otherwise. We have a great time. Um, and why we push it so hard uh, is because every single year, time and time again, we see people's lives absolutely transformed. And it's not because we're in Prescott and there's trees and it's cooler weather and it's amazing. And it's not because of anything that we as a college staff do. Um, but I just think there is something so significant and powerful about saying, okay, I am going to give my time. I'm going to give my resources. I'm going to sacrifice getting my homework done a little bit early so I can make it there. Um, because I think when we when we make space for God to show up and to move, he does. I have never once seen him fail. And so if you are even a little bit on the fence, um, please come talk to me after. I would love to convince you to come. Uh, but the deadline is tonight. And so we're asking everyone to uh, head to the table in the lobby at the very end of this and just sign up. Or you can do so through the link in our Instagram bio. You can do so on our website. If you come talk to any college staff member, we can airdrop you the link. We got lots of options here. So um, we would love to see you there. It is next weekend. So all of the details are going to be back there. If you have any other questions, um, bring a friend. It'll be awesome. And then we'll send out all of the details in an email to you guys next weekend. So if you're like, I have signed up and I still have no idea what's happening, um, details are coming. Check your emails. Um, and also next week, so after this service and before we actually leave, um, we're going to take some time to just kind of have like a pre-retreat rally. So if you're already registered or if you know you're planning on coming, um, just kind of in the back of your mind, remember that next week after Awaken, we're going to have all of you that are going on the retreat stick around here for a few extra minutes just to communicate some final details um, and a couple extra things we want to make sure that you know before we leave. <coughs> Excuse me. So... Um, we're not going to keep you super long. We want you to get plenty of sleep, but just keep that on your radar and tell your friends if they missed it tonight. All right, so we're going to jump into tonight. Um, we are in our third week of a series called Passionate People. 
We made the graphic a little bit more bearable for you guys, if you remember the like blinding white last week. Um, and we are in our community church, and we are committed to being a church full of individual people that are passionate about Jesus and his purposes in the earth a lot. Um, you may or may not get tired of hearing us say that over and over, but every time we say it, we mean it. We are a people that are deeply passionate about who Jesus is, and we're passionate about the things that he cares about and the things that he's doing around the world. And so over the last two weeks, we've been talking about what that actually looks like. So two weeks ago at our very first Awaken, Chris um, reminded us that in order to be passionate about God, we first need to know and understand and believe that God loved us first. And I love that we just sang about that. I think it's put so well in that song that he loved us first. And so we give it back in return to the maker um, of heaven. Because when, yeah, just when there's an understanding of how much he loves us and he loves us because he loves us because he loves us, when we really get that, our natural response is to love him in return. And then last week, if you were here, Dawson talked about then if we love him, the Bible says we will obey his commands. And when we love him, um, we know that when he commands us to do something, he has good intentions. And because he is God and he is perfect, his intentions, therefore, are also good and perfect. And so when he makes a command, it's not out of bullying us or um, being controlling in any way, but it's because he loves us and because he wants us to um, be free of things that, that hurt us that we don't even realize sometimes. And so tonight we're gonna continue in talking about what it means to be passionate people and how we actually let that shape our lives. So I loved college. I had a great college experience. Like I said, I went to GCU. Um, and while I was there, there was a word that seemed to come up pretty often, especially in my college years. Um, you've maybe heard of it. It was thrown around a lot. Um, have any, has anyone ever heard of FOMO? That's still around? Great. Okay, so the fear of missing out, right? If you've never heard of this somehow in your life before, um, basically it's that idea or, or like the feeling of that anxiety kind of rising up in you um, when you're like, ah, there might be something better that I'm not a part of, right? It's like, oh man, I just checked Instagram, I see my friends doing something and I'm stuck here doing homework. Like, ah, there's something that I'm missing out on, right? For whatever reason. And this is a real thing that I would say most people experience at some point in their lives, but I would say especially in college, this is so prevalent, right? And especially in this time where you can kind of see what all your friends are doing at any given moment on social media, you're constantly aware of what other people are doing and how much more fun and interesting it seems than what you're currently doing. I think a lot of people can relate to that. Um, and this fear keeps us in this constant, just being real with you, this constant non-committal state where we don't actually want to make plans um, in case something better comes up. Because has anyone done that before or is that just me? Like, someone's like, hey, you want a study leader? And you're like, oh yeah, maybe, I don't really know, I'll see, I'll see if I'm free, I'll see what I'm doing. And then someone else is like, hey, me and three other friends that you're a lot closer to are also going to study later. You want to do that? And you're like, ooh, that sounds better. I'm going to do that. Because I didn't actually, I didn't really commit. You know, I just kind of said maybe. Um, no condemnation. I've done that. I get it. Um, but it's like this, this thought that like, man, if I say yes to something, I'm going to miss out on something better. And so I want to keep my options open. And I think a lot of us are guilty of this. That's OK. Um, but tonight, I want us to have a little bit of that FOMO. 
honestly. Because in the grand scheme of our whole lives, I think I have noticed that we are fairly easily tricked into settling for something that is less than the best option. It's kind of weird. We're always wanting to pursue what we think is going to be the best. And yet, over and over again, I have seen students live lives where they're settling for less than what's best. So tonight, I'm going to tell you how to live a life that ensures you will not miss out on the very best, but you are going to have to hang with me until the very end. OK, so go ahead and open up your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 2. So it's in the last, if you have a paper Bible, it's in the last third. Look for Luke at the top, chapter 2. Oh, thanks. Um, don't worry. We're not reading the Christmas story. I know that's what a lot of you are thinking, because I said Luke 2, and you're like, I hear that every December. I know it is only September. We're not there yet, OK? Um, we're going to read shortly after the birth of Jesus and all that happens there. We're going to start in verses 22 through 33. So it's going to be up on the screen if you want to follow along. Um, I like to read out of the, I think it's the New Living Translation, the NLT. So if you have the, the app and you want to read it on there, that's what I'm going to be reading out of. So then it was time for their purification offering as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of the Lord says, if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And this might seem really random while we're reading this right now, but we're just going to pause here for a second because there's a couple of things that I want to know, okay? This account of history takes place 40 days after the birth of Jesus. So I think most of us in this room know the story of baby Jesus being born. Um, it's a big deal. He's born in a manger. Um, Jesus is God in flesh. Um, and this was 40 days prior to when this takes place. So it's all still pretty fresh. And at this point, his parents, those random shepherds that the angels told, and whoever else they also informed are pretty much the only ones that know Jesus is alive at this point in time, okay? No one else really knows. No one else really cares. Um, they have been told that he is supposedly significant, but this is a baby. Like, how much, how much do we believe that, right? And they have no idea what's going to come. And historically, the Jewish people knew that there was supposed to be a man coming that would save them. And they had waited for a lot of years for this man that they would call the Messiah. Messiah the Messiah just meant the one who would save them or rescue them. And so they have been waiting and waiting and waiting as a people for this man to come and rescue them. And the belief was that the Savior would rescue them from the oppression of the Roman government. And so even though the entire Jewish population has been waiting around for years for this Savior, he finally shows up, and he is not what they were planning on or who they were waiting for. Okay? So the second thing to note is that because Jesus was born into a Jewish family, uh, they were following the law of Moses mentioned, and they took him to the temple to redeem him through some kind of payment. And because this says their payment was a pair of birds, it basically meant that his family was pretty poor and they couldn't afford the standard sacrifice. This will be relevant later, I promise. We're going to keep reading. So at that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel, like 
every other Jew, right? The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord, as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms, praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people, Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. So this, this is a very ordinary situation, right? This very ordinary, nondescript family comes to the temple to do their average, normal Jewish duty, and there's really nothing special or impressive about this. For Simeon, this is the moment he's been waiting for. And we don't know exactly what the timeline of things was here. We don't know how long ago the Holy Spirit revealed to him that he would, he, that he would see Jesus in his lifetime. But if I had to guess, purely based off of his reaction and response, he's been waiting for this for a very, very long time. Put yourself in his shoes for a moment. At some point in his life, God tells him through the Holy Spirit that he is going to get to see the Messiah, who everyone has been waiting for. And he's going to get to see the Messiah before he dies. I don't know about you, but I would have a lot of questions. Hey, God, can we get any sort of timeline here? When is this going to happen? What am I looking for? Anything at all? Like, is this going to be one of those things where I just kind of pass him in the street and actually have no idea that that was the Messiah? Am I going to re like recognize him? Is there going to be some sort of sign? Like, yeah, this is him. I would have a lot of questions. And maybe Simeon did. I don't know. But he trusted God in it. And so how is it that basically going off of you will see the Messiah at some point before you die, how did he end up in just the right place at just the right time. He was there because he knew how to follow the voice of God. He was fully devoted to following God's leadership in his life. Verse 27 says, that day the spirit led him to the temple. So when I read that, I'm picturing Simeon out living his normal life, maybe heading to work, maybe off to a coffee shop, I don't know. And the Holy Spirit's like, hey, I want you to go to the temple today, right? The Spirit of God led him to the temple. And Simeon lived his life in such a way that at any moment, God could say, hey, I want you to go there, knowing that Simeon would actually do so. He lived a life that made space for God to change his plans at any given moment. And can you imagine what would have happened if he had ignored that? Or if he had grown tired of waiting to see the fulfillment of God's promise and just given up? He's like, you know, it's been... It's been eight years. Like, that's a long time to wait for something. I'm kind of over it. I'm done looking for the Messiah. I'm, I'm not going to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit anymore. I think if that was the case, he genuinely would have missed it. But he left room for God to change his plans. He didn't give up on what God had already spoken, but he clung to God's promise to him. Again, we don't know how old Simeon was or how long he'd been waiting to see the fulfillment of this promise, but another translation of verse 29 says, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace. It seems like he was pretty ready for the end of his life. So my guess is he was, he 
he was close. Like, it doesn't say this, but my guess is he was probably kind of old and he was ready to move on. But he clung so tightly to God's promise that he was like, I'm not going anywhere until I see it actually come to pass. He believed that God would be faithful to do what he had promised. And there might be some of you tonight that, um, that either have given up on or are close to giving up on a, a promise from the Lord. And specifically, I felt like there, um, just as I was praying for tonight, I felt like there might be people here uh, that don't, maybe don't fully believe or have a hard time believing that God is actually with you, that he loves you. And it feels like that because, like, every time I go to him, every time I pray, he's distant or just doesn't feel like he's listening. And I encourage you tonight to read uh, Matthew 28, and at the end it says, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so if that's you tonight, my invitation is to just go ahead and respond right now. You don't have to wait till the end, but um, pull out a journal or a note and just start praying through that with the Lord and meditating on that verse. Because God is so faithful to his promises, you guys. There's another verse in the Bible that says, The word of the Lord does not return void. Ever. He's not going to say something that he's not going to fulfill. And the other thing that I love about this story is that Simeon trusted in God's voice over any others. Trusted in the voice of the Lord over his own, over the voice of the people around him, the other Jews. He didn't only believe God at his word, but he continued to believe him even when it did not seem likely that it would ever happen. Remember, all the Jews really believed was that um, the Messiah would be a military leader. They thought he would be someone with power and influence, and that's probably what Simeon was actually expecting to see. But when he walked into the temple and saw this infant and his poor family, he immediately had full confidence that that was his savior. Immediately, there was no doubt in him. He wasn't like, ah, that wasn't really what we were hoping for. <laughs> It's not really what we were expecting. I don't see how useful he's going to be. He immediately said, that's him. That's the savior of the world, this 40-day-old infant. And I think what, um, what brings even more validity to the Holy Spirit at work in him is that Simeon took it a step further and said, this isn't just the savior of Israel, but this baby is a light that will reveal God to the nations. And any good Jew at the time would have said salvation was for them and them alone. It wasn't for um, what was known as the Gentiles or people that weren't Jewish. But for Simeon, it didn't matter. He knew what the voice of God sounded like. It was familiar to him. And he learned to trust that voice over everything else so that when God led him to the temple and said, yes, that is my son, that is the one that is going to save you, he's going to save all your people, he's going to save the nations... Simeon didn't hesitate for a second. He never said that doesn't make sense or I don't understand how that's possible. He said, wow, praise God. He's here. He's faithfully fulfilled his word to me. And that's more than enough. He didn't miss it. He put himself in a position to see God by being devoted to the voice of the Lord. You guys still with me? All right. We're going to keep reading um, in verse 36. Luke 2. Anna, 
a prophet who was also there in the, was also there in the temple. She was the daughter of Phanuel from the t- tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married only seven years. Then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. So Simeon's holding Jesus, and this random woman, Anna, shows up. He's like having a nice conversation with Mary and Joseph, and Anna just kind of walks in and takes over. And I I actually love um, that Luke makes a point to include her in this story of history. She doesn't show up anywhere else in the Bible. The only things that we know about her are from these three verses. He says that she never left the temple, but she stayed there day and night. So some scholars or people that have spent a lot of time studying the Bible take this to mean that she actually lived there, but there's others that would say that Luke is just trying to get across the idea that she spent a lot of time there. Um, However you want to look at it, it's very clear that she was there often enough that she was just kind of known for being the temple lady. She was like the lady always there in the temple, just kind of hanging out. The other part of verse 37 is also a little bit debated on how it should be translated. But it's one of two ways, either like it says in this version, where she lived as a widow to the age of 84, or she was a widow for 84 years. Um, If you do some math real quick, sorry if you hate math, I'll do it for you. Um, But based on what was most common at the time, she probably got married around 13 or 14. So she was a widow by the time she was in her early 20s. And however you decide that verse should be translated, that means that she has essentially been in the temple, fasting, praying, and worshiping God for somewhere between 63 to 84 years. It's a long time. That's like three or four times most of your lifetimes, right? She spent 63 to 84 years in the house of God as close to him as she could possibly get. And while we may not know a lot about her, we know that her husband died early, and she never remarried. She was always a widow. There's no children mentioned, so she may have never had any, which would have been a really big deal in that day. Or she did, and they they didn't really live the same kind of lifestyle that she did, so they're not mentioned in this story. But either way, her life held grief and tension, and she was probably pretty misunderstood a lot of the time. I would imagine that there were times where she felt lonely and unseen. But it didn't really matter to her. For Anna, all that mattered above anything else was being in God's house and in his presence. And I find it so beautiful that she came to God again and again in worship while still waiting, like every other Jew, for the hope of a Savior to come. She wasn't worshiping God because of what he had done. She was merely worshiping him because of who she knew him to be. And because she had spent so many years in his presence, she knew him very, very well. By this time, she's somewhere between 84 and like 105. So she's old, okay? Even Luke says that. He's like, this lady is old, Um, visibly so. If you know old people, sometimes their their eyesight's going a little bit, their hearing's a little bit gone, 
Um, she fasted a lot, so she was probably pretty frail. Like, her, her body was kind of falling apart in a lot of ways, right? And yet, even though she probably couldn't see too well, even though she probably couldn't hear too well, the moment that she saw Jesus, she too was confident that he was her savior. Again, this is not what she was expecting. But I think it was easy for her to recognize him because her spirit immediately knew the one that she had spent decades getting to know. She was so familiar with who he was, what his presence felt like, that it was unmistakable to her that this child was God in the flesh. And her response was to do exactly what she'd always done. She worshiped the Lord through thanking him. And I think that over the years, she had developed the habit of responding to him first and then talking about it with other people. I love that she had her priorities in the right order here. This is a, this is a big deal. Like, they have finally found the Messiah, and that's extremely exciting. That means her people are saved. That means the world is saved. It's great news. And her first response is worshiping God. It's acknowledging what he had given her in this moment. And if I'm honest, a lot of times I think we are quick to skip over that part in our lives. Thanking God and worshiping him is more of an afterthought than a first response. But what if we actually followed the example of Anna? What if we learned how to go to, go to the Lord first, both in times of grief and in times of praise? I think if we did, we would start to care a lot more about what he said about a lot of things than anyone else. Just something to think about. And the last thing that I really love about Anna is that she could not help but share this with her community. And I think that speaks to the passion that she had for the Lord and for his people. She cared about the people that God cared about, and she had to tell him, tell them that hope had come. She didn't save it for a select few or wait until the next day, but her immediate follow-up action to meeting with God was that she couldn't keep it in. And I think that's what, what happens when we're actually passionate about something. Like, if you are passionate about something, you can't stop talking about it. And this isn't like, if you're not always talking about Jesus, you're doing it wrong. That's not it at all. But I think there, it speaks to something in us of what flows out of us, right? Like, what you say and how you respond to things speaks about what's in your heart. And so if you love Jesus and you're passionate about him, your natural response more often than not, is going to be acknowledging him and telling people about him. She talked to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. See, Simeon was devoted to the voice of God. Anna was devoted to sitting in his presence. Like Simeon, Anna chose to allow God to shape even the structure of her days. He let the Holy Spirit lead him day in and day out, and she gave him every minute. Both carried a passion for the Lord in different ways. Both waited and waited to see the God that they loved so deeply face to face. There's extremely few stories that are recorded about Jesus any time before he began his ministry when he was about 30. And people often say that he spent those years leading up to that in obscurity and unknown by anyone else. But Anna and Simeon are counted among the very few that knew him for who he was from the very beginning. 
It's an honor that God gave them because of their wholehearted devotion to him. Simeon didn't just believe God's promises for a season. Anna never gave up meeting with him in the temple. They longed to see Jesus face to face, and it was well worth their sacrifices. Guys, I promise you, they did not miss out. They didn't settle for anything less than God himself. So what does that mean for us? We're going to take a look at one more section of scripture before we answer that question. So if you're reading a paper Bible, take a small left to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to pick up towards the end in verse 24. And so at this point, this is grown-up Jesus. He is at the very beginning of his ministry, and he is uh, currently giving his most well-known sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, or that's at least what we call it. I don't know if Jesus had a title. Uh, It starts in chapter 5, and like I said, it takes place towards the beginning of his ministry, and at this time, there's a ton of crowds following him. The um, right before it starts, it said great, great crowds were following him. So he's on this mountain, tons of people are around. He's giving his first big sermon that we know of, and he is no longer in obscurity. He covers a few major topics in this sermon. He teaches people how to pray. He talks about anger. He talks about lust, how to handle messy relationships, what you should do with your money, anxiety, all kinds of stuff. And this is where he's ending it. So read with me in verse 24. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and floodwaters rise and winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. So we have two hypothetical men here, right? And both are doing the same thing. They're building a house. One of them actively looks for a solid foundation. He says, I'm going to be wise. I'm going to build my house on something that's actually going to last, that's not going anywhere. That rock looks good. The other isn't necessarily looking for a bad foundation. He's just a little bit more passive in where he builds his house. Kind of like, yeah, that beach looks nice. It's got a good ocean view. Sun's out. Seems fun. Beach house. Full send. Right? Okay, but hear me on this. The second builder did not intentionally choose a bad foundation. He simply did not intentionally choose a good one. And if we're being really honest with ourselves, I think a lot of us can relate. Because Jesus isn't actually talking about building a house, right? He's talking about how you live your life. A lot of us, it's easy to just kind of let life happen. Not like intentionally looking for ways to disobey God. It's just like, well, this, this seems easy. This seems like a good idea. We're not at least disobeying him on purpose, but at the same time, we're not actively looking for ways to obey him either, right? We're not looking for how to worship him or to honor and bless him in our day-to-day lives. And sometimes we are, for sure. Um, But if we're looking at our lives as a whole, it's a lot easier to just kind of 
let life happen. But please hear me tonight. You cannot let life just happen. Because when you do, the minute that things get hard, the minute that storms come, you will crumble. Trust me on it. There's a lot of grace and hope in Jesus, and when everything crumbles, he will absolutely help you rebuild your house every single time. He is gracious beyond we can imagine, and he will absolutely help you pick up the pieces and start over. But what if instead we built our lives on a rock? He says that a person who builds their house on rock is the one who listens to him and follows him. It's the one who becomes familiar with what he sounds like, like Simeon did. The one who lets God interrupts their day's plans because he had something better in mind. It's the one, who built, the one who builds their house on the rock is the one who prioritizes being in his presence and actually knowing him for who he is. It's the one who chooses him even when it's not easy. Friends, I urge you not to settle for anything less than Jesus. It is entirely up to you how you choose to live your life. No one else is gonna do it for you. You have full say. And especially in college, like I think there's a sweet place in college where um, you're not under your parents' house anymore. Maybe some of you are, but for the most part, you're kind of becoming your own adult, your own person. You're deciding what direction your life is gonna go in and you don't have the full responsibilities of adulthood yet for the most part. It's kind of the sweet in between where you have time to figure it out. You have time to understand what direction your life is gonna go in to adjust it or change it. And I think that's great. You alone decide the foundation that you're gonna build your life on. And truthfully, the only two options that you actually have are with Jesus or without him. There isn't an in-between, there's no gray area, there's no option C, that's it. You either build your house on a rock or on sand. I promise you that living with him is the best. It is hands down the best option that you will ever have. But it does require wholehearted devotion to him. It requires you to make some changes in your life. And if you don't want that, we still love you. You're still welcome. But if you do, then there's a couple of ways that we're going to respond tonight, okay? The first is really, really practical. Anna gave her whole life to sitting in God's presence. And I think, um, especially in college, there, it's really easy to let our schedules fill up. You know, we're, a lot of you guys are students, so you have class probably trying to make ends meet, so you have jobs. There's a lot of opportunities for different activities, so you say yes to a lot of things. And a lot of it is, is really good things, in all honesty. You're living on the same campus um, a lot of times, or at least in a house with your close friends. So at any given moment, you could run into them or study with them or whatever, right? There's so many options um, for ways to fill your time in this season. But I love how Anna spent her years sitting in the presence of God. And the end result was she got to see God face to face. She greeted him as a friend. She was like, I know him. He is 40 days old, but I have known him for the last 64 years. 
And so one thing that you can do tonight is we're going to have um, like little, I don't know, pages up here um, that have a schedule on it. This is really practical, guys. It's Sunday through Saturday, midnight to midnight, and half hour blocks of time. And my encouragement to you um, is to take one, to put your class, your work schedule in there, the things that like can't be moved, and then block out at least one or two slots every day to just spend with Jesus. And that doesn't have to look any particular way. It can just be praying. It can be worshiping. It can be giving thanks. It can be reading his word, a combination of all of it. But just spend some time intentionally with Jesus. Do that for a week and just see what happens. I will say I notice a significant difference on days that I do spend time with Jesus versus the ones that I don't. The ones that I don't, I'm like, oof. I, that was a lot meaner than I really meant it in my head when I said it out loud, right? Or, man, I had little patience for anyone today. But the days that I do actually just spend some time intentionally meeting with God, game changer. Because even though it's just a little bit at a time, those little steps that you take towards Jesus will absolutely transform your life. So take one, fill it out. Um, and then the real, the real challenge here is to not let things actually get in the way. So you have your 30, 30 minute block or an hour and your friend says, hey, I'm gonna go to a coffee shop, you wanna join? I'm so sorry, I have plans with Jesus in my dorm room. The second thing that I felt um, we could respond to tonight is that being passionate about Jesus means that his voice is more important than any others, and that includes our own. And maybe tonight there's something that you already know he's been prompting you to do um, that's different or scary or um, not a part of your dream plan for your life. It could be changing your major. That's a big step. That's really scary. It could be maybe he's asking you to give money to someone that you know is in need and you're like, ah, but I worked really hard for that and I, I really like financial security. That's okay. But if it's led by the Lord, I would encourage you to let, listen to his voice over the voice of fear. And the voice of fear is really, really loud. Really loud. But guys, his is so much better. Maybe um, the thing that he's prompting you to, to change is there's one way that you behave around some people that's just not what you would normally do, but you just kind of go along with it because you're terrified of what they would say. Tonight, I encourage you to let Jesus have the final say. And please know that you're not in it alone. It is a lot easier to talk about making changes than to actually put them into practice. And so we're gonna have um, a ministry team up here and we would actually really just love to pray for you. We would love to pray that, um, that God gives you what you need to take those steps of action, to actually live out what it means to be wholeheartedly devoted to him. And the last thing, if there is something that you have been believing God for for a long time and just are feeling really discouraged about, we would love to join you in prayer for that too. We're not in it alone, but we have a community of people that also love Jesus that are in it together with you. And so 
we're gonna go into a time of response. And really what that means is we just wanna actually respond to the Lord. Like if you're having a conversation with a friend, it's not one-sided, right? Like you actually respond to them. Like if I'm talking um, and making plans with someone for tomorrow and they like don't respond, it's not gonna go anywhere, right? And so we're gonna take some time to just meet with God and ask him, what, what is the thing that you want me to respond to? Maybe it's something I said, maybe it's completely not even related to tonight and that's totally fine. I don't really care what it is, but I do care that each of you walk out of here one step closer to Jesus than when you walked in. And that is what we genuinely pray for you week in and week out. We just wanna look like Jesus. We want our lives to be wholeheartedly devoted to him. And so whatever it looks like, whether it's journaling, whether it's praying with a friend, whether it's praying with a member of our, our ministry team or just meditating on God's word, please don't like, leave here without responding to him. So Jesus, um, thank you God for just the invitation to come to you. God, we just say that we love your voice. We love your presence. We wouldn't be here without it. So God, I pray that you would just, um, you would speak to individual hearts right now. God, whatever the thing is that you're leading them towards, I pray for softened hearts, for ears to hear it. God, and that we would be a people that are passionate about you and are quick to respond when you speak. Lord, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't hear what you have to say and then just say, ah, that sounds really hard. I don't know if it's for me. And we wouldn't choose to ignore it, but God, that we would press into what you have and we would not miss out. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.